It's been argued by some ethicists that how things appear is sometimes more important than how they actually are. In an age of relativism, what impact does this have on our understanding of truth, if it at all exists? And what does it mean to say that the Bible itself is true? Find out in this episode of the Thinking Faithfully podcast. Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to the Thinking Faithfully podcast. I'm your host, Terry Nesu, and I'm glad you've joined me in having conversations that matter. Welcome to episode two. If you haven't already, may I encourage you to begin by listening to episode one, Can and Would God Speak to Us, as there's a thread going through the episodes and may be helpful to you in more quickly grasping the conclusions we aim to reach based off matters previously discussed. Without further ado, the subject of today's episode is truth. It's a term we so often use in various variations. Truth true, trust, trustworthy. But have you, like the Roman official Pontius Pilate, ever wondered, what is truth? We're fortunately not the first to ask this, and by no means the last. It is here we shall begin our inquiry, before soon discussing what it means for the Bible itself to be true. To avoid any form of misunderstanding, today's pod isn't discussing or offering a defense as to why the Bible is true. That'll be covered as we, as we respond to common objections from episode 3 onwards. Today, we are primarily concerned with what it means for the Bible to be true and the implications thereof. On this matter, Professor of Theological Studies Douglas Blunt, an author on both philosophy and theological works, was my main point of reference, though where I found some matters somewhat unclear or lacking the exactitude or preciseness I desired, I either infused my layman understanding into it or sought a second opinion from other scholars' interpretations on the various matters. I sincerely hope that may prove more beneficial to you as the listener than misleading. Before discussing what it means for the Bible to be true, it seems needful to discuss what it means for any proposition to be true. The subject of truth or falsehood is propositions. We can say a sentence uttered by someone is true if the proposition within that sentence is true. Proposition, simply put, means something offered for consideration or acceptance. For example, I woke up this morning. That sentence is true because the proposition within it that I woke up is true. So the sentence is true in a derivative sense, that is, as a result of the something being offered for acceptance being true, namely, my waking up. Now that we're familiar, at least I hope we are, familiar with what a proposition is, what does it mean for a proposition to be true? The definition of truth that, received the, that receives the most support both today and historically and which I've heard broadly used by Christians and non-Christians alike is to say of what is that it is not or of what is not that it is, is false. Aristotle states, 
while to say of what is, that it is, and of what is not, that it is not, is true. This view is known as the correspondence theory of truth. So if a proposition is to be true, then things in reality should be as the proposition say, says they are or suggests they are. Correspondence theory of truth is thus defined for any proposition P. P is true just in case it corresponds to reality. Might I add, this is not the only view of truth. There is also the coherence theory and the pragmatic theory. But this isn't a lecture on truth, and since I neither have the time nor the expertise to offer a lecture, I'd encourage you to dig deeper into these other definitions if they interest you. For all intents and purposes, however, I must propose the correspondence theory as the most tenable one. But for those of you who are ravenously curious about the other two theories, I will just quickly go through them for the sake of the other arguments that we'll present later on. Simply put, if such matters can be put in such a manner, the coherence theory holds that a proposition is true just in case it coheres with other propositions. The question now, here now becomes, correspond with which other propositions? Likely, you're thinking, well, the ones that correspond to reality, but now would be dealing with the correspondence theory. So, if not alignment with reality, what becomes the criteria for the other propositions worth considering? That there is the disadvantage of the coherence theory. The other theory I mentioned was that of the pragmatic theory. And the pragmatic theory holds that a proposition is true just in case it is useful in practice. So a beneficial or useful outcome warrants its truth. Imagine you want to audition for a concert. You've convinced yourself you're not good enough. So you practice your instrument all the more diligently. It's not objectively true that you weren't already good enough. But there was a benefit derived from you thinking so, in that you were practice, practicing more, and thus it was true. Thus something proving pragmatically valuable does not guarantee its fitting reality. As a side note, I believe the pragmatic theory to be the granddaddy philosophy of truth in our time in the 21st century. This is because the general consensus seems to be Everyone should pursue truth that works for them. Own your truth, as some describe it. The rationale often being, as long as you derive a comparative advantage or benefit from it, then it's fine. That's your truth. But it gets me thinking. Andrei Sokharov, the father of the Soviet hydrogen bomb, once said, I always thought the most powerful weapon in the world was the bomb. I have changed my mind. The most powerful weapon in the world is the truth. Now, my dear listener, what power is yielded by truth when it is subject to our individual whims and dictates and cannot stand by itself, independent of our feelings and preferences? From what we've discussed, could we really describe the pragmatic theory to be the best definition of truth? Something, I think, worth thinking faithfully over 
as we continue to have these sort of conversations on truth as an objective reality and the world and culture we currently live in. Moving on now to the Bible. What does it mean for the Bible to be true? That the Bible speaks truly does not only mean that it simply speaks coherently. I am well aware that at this point the objection of contradictions within the Bible would be raised, but that's a topic for a couple of weeks' time, so allow us to not dwell on it right now. The Bible's assertions taken together compose a coherent set. So also the set of propositions, which we said are derivatives of the sentences, or in this case assertions, so that set of propositions expressed by those assertions is also coherent based off our earlier premise. But the coherence of that set does not constitute the truth of those propositions, because we did discuss briefly of about why it is that that just because things are coherent does not necessitate them to be true. This is the coherence view in action. Because yes, you could have stories that tie up meticulously, but they could all be lies. Or to be more politically correct, truth shy. Think of a court case. Two witnesses, or even make it three, could plot to change the trajectory of a case by fabricating a story. They can make their story balance or cohere, and that would make it no more true than if they each thumb-sucked their own accounts on the particular day. Save for an unlikely stroke of fortune and coincidence, the thumb-sucked stories would inevitably not cohere, but would be no less truthful than the coherent fabricated stories. On to another matter. The Bible itself claims to be useful. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Even so, the usefulness of propositions expressed by biblical assertions does not their truthfulness make. Otherwise, we'd be guilty of the disadvantage of the pragmatic theory earlier discussed. For even if truth is necessarily useful, it does not follow that useful propositions are necessarily true. That sounds really cool, but let's just backtrack for a little moment and try understand what we mean by that. What do you think of when we say that statement? I think of a discussion with many a Christian friend who says that because a teaching of the Bible has been useful or impactful in their life, they believe it to be true. Don't get me wrong now. Whilst it's great it had that impact, that's not the definition or basis of the Bible being true. I'll explain why. If someone else doesn't enjoy the same experience, and by enjoy I mean participate, does it now deem it that the Bible is false because they didn't find that thing to be true? The law of non-contradiction says something cannot be both true and false at the same time. There's no room for your truth or my truth. There's only room for objective truth. Otherwise, we find ourselves guilty of the pragmatic view of truth. 
whatever works or is beneficial is true, as we earlier discussed. And as we've established here, this creates more problems than it seemingly resolves. Now, it must be said, the Bible isn't merely a catalogue of just assertions. That would make it quite a peculiar book. But it includes warnings, exhortations, praise, rebuking, etc., etc. So when we argue that the Bible is true, we must mean more than just true in terms of its assertions corresponding to what happened in reality in the past, present, and the future. We must mean that it's true in its entirety, even those matters that are not, are not as in a sense like realistic or pertain to reality, things that actually can happen or did happen. American philosopher Nicholas Walterstoff is helpful here. He mentions how we speak of things like coffee or friends to be true. I'll interject with an anecdote on this matter. I have some reformed Baptist friends who are quite the coffee snobs. They'll often say they take their coffee like they take their word, that is scripture, and that is true and unadulterated. But what in the world do they mean by true in describing coffee? It is the reality itself as coffee. So what is it corresponding to? What do they mean coffee is true? At this juncture, I hope you'll agree, we don't mean this true in the same sense we mean propositions to be true. Nicholas thus argues, there's a sense in which there is that of something's measuring up, that is, measuring up in being or excellence. So since the Bible's non-assertive discourse does not correspond to reality like propositions would, its truth must involve some other kind of measuring up some other kind of excellence. I suggest, he says, that the excellence of such discourse amounts to something like fittingness, measuring up, to guide God's people in righteous living. This would tie up with the idea floated in episode 1, that if God would speak to us, would he not have exact remedies or answers to questions we'd not even asked before, given that he made us? Answers that measure up and are thus true in this second sense we are considering now. It appears to me, therefore, that for the Bible to be true means at least two things. Firstly, its claims or assertions must correspond to reality. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den is true, if truly Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And secondly, its non-assertive discourse is also true, but as it can't correspond to reality, is true in a qualitative sense of measuring up, and dare I say, to godly excellence. Now that we've briefly discussed what it means for the Bible to be true, what is the major implication of the Bible being true? I thought this quote from another philosopher and theologian by the name Stephen Davis was fairly comprehensive. He says, If we take the Bible to be true, we trust it to guide our lives. We allow our lives to be influenced by it. We intend to listen where it speaks. We consider it normative. We look to it for comfort, encouragement, challenge, warning, guidance, 
and instruction. In short, we submit to the Bible and we place ourselves under its theological authority. And we are right to do so. It is for this reason that this first series of the Thinking Faithfully podcast is on the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because I firmly am of the conviction that everything rises or falls on whether it's not only reliable, but true. Have you given this matter much thought? Whether you've been walking with Christ for years, or maybe you haven't, and haven't quite gotten yourself to even read the Bible, whether meaningfully or at all, have you seriously thought of what it means for the Bible to be true and the implications on your life? If not, may I encourage you to spare a moment to do so. It's a small price to pay for something that may change the very trajectory of the rest of your life. Otherwise, that's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in to episode two. I hope you come away with something to ponder for the next week or two from the three views of truth, which we said were correspondence, coherence, and the pragmatic theory, to the types of truth the Bible offers and the implications thereof. To make sure you don't miss out on episode three and other episodes, please do subscribe wherever you're streaming the podcast from. And as a way to encourage others to also think faithfully, please consider sharing the podcast as well as rating and reviewing the podcast. And if you have a pressing question, comment, or a suggestion for improvement, please contact me via email at thinkingfaithfully at gmail.com. That's thinkingfaithfully at gmail.com. And I'll do my very best to get back to you, remembering, of course, that I'm just a layman on a journey to learn, unlearn, and relearn. Keep well, keep safe, and God bless. Mm-hmm.